Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Rob Snyder, Manhattan Borough Historian and Professor Emeritus at Rutgers University. Welcome to the New Books Network. The history of small political parties and the history of the American left are closely intertwined, especially in Daniel Sawyer's book, Left in the Center, The Liberal Party of New York and the Rise and Fall of American Social Democracy. From its founding in 1944 until it disbanded in 2002, the Liberal Party played a strategic role in New York state politics. Founded by anti-communist labor activists, social democrats, and liberals, the party brought a social democratic dimension to New York politics in its early years and made strategic use of New York state law that allows candidates to run on more than one party line. This practice enabled the liberal party to endorse a democrat or republican who then ran as the candidate of a major party and the liberal party. The practice is called cross-endorsement, and the Liberal Party used it to tip the balance of votes by offering or withholding support. Although the Liberal Party is gone, and some critics say that in its final years it was little more than a patronage mill, it set a blueprint followed on the right by New York's Conservative Party and on the left by the state's Working Families Party. The Liberal Party's history illuminates the awkward relationship between principles and pragmatism, but it also helps us understand the role of third parties in American politics and the electoral fortunes of the more moderate end of the American left. I'm talking today with Dan Sawyer, author of Left in the Center. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Oh, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me here. How did you get interested in the topic of the Liberal Party? Well, I was. Uh, there's kind of two directions I came to it from. Um, one is that I w- was a historian, I am a st- historian of uh, American Jewish history and uh, the Eastern European mass immigration of Yiddish-speaking Jews to the United States in the early, late 19th, early 20th centuries, and especially the politics of that community and the labor movement and the socialist movement. And the Liberal Party was in some ways an outgrowth of that. So that's one direction. The other direction was um, that it seemed to me that a lot of historians of the American left and uh, especially of the left in New York City, um, New York City politics, were very focused on and in some ways enamored of uh, the communists and the pro-communist left, the pro-Soviet left. And I knew that there was this other left uh, in New York, and I, but no one was was writing about them. So um, I wanted to do that. I wanted to see if there could be a progressive movement, an independent uh, political party and movement without the kind of baggage of um, the Soviet Union. <laughs> so that's a little, it's a little sectarian in a way, but it's also I think scholarly in the sense that it was a something that was being left out of the history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So who founded the Liberal Party? What were the circumstances? So, uh, well, in order to understand the founding of the Liberal Party, you have to go back a few years to the mid-1930s. Um, the, 
book actually starts in 1886, but I won't <laughs> try to go back. But if you go back to 1936, uh, there were some, as you said, kind of the moderate uh, end of uh, the socialist movement uh, in the United States, particularly in New York, because the Liberal Party only existed in New York, uh, and uh, some independent liberals who wanted to support Roosevelt and the New Deal when he ran for re-election. Uh, they wanted to support, wanted to support um, Governor Lehman. Both Roosevelt and Lehman were Democrats, but they also wanted to support the biggest New Dealer in New York City, who was Mayor LaGuardia, who was nominally a Republican. They wanted also to reinsert themselves into the mainstream of politics. The Socialist Party had had a, uh, a brief electoral heyday like around the time of World War One, But by the 1920s, uh, for a variety of reasons, the Socialist Party could never elect anyone again. So these socialists who were very practical, they wanted to play real politics. They wanted to, to have an effect on policy. Uh, they wanted to support these progressive candidates of the major parties, but they didn't want to join the Democratic Party. Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy in the South. It was the party of big city machines like Tammany Hall that they hated. Um, they didn't want to re- join the Republican Party because the Republican Party, even though it was the party also of people like LaGuardia, was the party of big business. So they looked around, and as you mentioned in the intro, they noticed this little used and little noticed provision, an unusual provision in New York State electorate electoral law, which says a candidate can be the candidate of more than one party at a time. So they formed their own party called the American Labor Party. And this and and most of the time they supported progressive candidates of the major parties. But if they wanted to, they could support they could run their own candidate as well. Um, you're really asking about the Liberal Party. So coincidentally the communists entered a period in which they too wanted to enter kind of mainstream uh, politics. And they said, hey, this American Labor Party, that's a great vehicle for us. So they entered it too. And for eight years, they kind of duked it out within the party. But in 1943-44, the pro-communist faction took control of the American Labor Party and so the anti-communist faction split and formed the Liberal Party. So that was the that was the beginning of the Liberal Party in 1944. So what does the history of the Liberal Party tell us about the role of ethnicity in New York politics? Well, I think it tells us that it's kind of always there, even though it's not explicit. Um, the party, as I said, it it grew out of certain sectors of the labor movement. And those sectors were mainly the garment trades, right? Especially the internationally, these garment workers union, um, some extent the hatters union, which was much smaller. So these trades had been predominantly Jewish. The unions still were very Jewish and the, and the leadership of the unions were very Jewish. Um, and so the party was also very Jewish. There were also Italians, which were the you know the other large group within the the needle trades and the needle trades unions. Uh, but 
uh, they were less prominent in the party, less numerous in the party. Um, it's interesting, though, that the chair of the Liberal Party, there was a state chairman. So the state chairman of the Liberal Party was always a Gentile intellectual, preferably a professor or a minister, um, preferably Protestant and from the Midwest or maybe from New England. But um, there was one Catholic uh, professor. <laughs> uh, but the, the real guys, and I say guys because it was really, you know, mostly men and the inner circle was all men who really controlled the party uh, day to day were these Yiddish accented trade unionists. And if you look at kind of the lower level leadership, if you look at, let's say, the county executive committees, it's like 80, 90 percent Jewish. Um, and in some districts, you know, again, the Jewish districts, it could be sometimes the second party behind the Democrats. I mean, what was the Jewishness of these early liberal party members like? Was it religious? Was it secular? What was it? Well, you know, on a personal level, it might have been a lot of things. But uh, on a communal level, it was really secular. It was not religious. Um, it was not their liberalism or their social democ democracy, socialism, was not derived from any kind of reading of you know, traditional Jewish texts or anything like that. Um, it was kind of an ethnic uh, identification coming out of a specific historical experience. So um, in, you know, from Russia to immigration to working in the shops, um, particular kind of reactions to those things, uh, it was a kind of ethnic political style, you know, that... Um, was not explicitly Jewish, but was very much identified with Jews, you know, particularly in New York City. Uh, certainly in other parts of the country, there were, you know, other other groups that were that had similar kinds of politics. You know, it's, in its early years, the Liberal Party was in New York, a city and a state where there were both liberal Democrats and liberal Republicans. So how did the Liberal Party distinguish itself in that environment? Well, I think that was part of the point, right? That the Democrats had some good people, you know, but they also had some rotten people. <laughs> and the Republicans had some good people and also some rotten people. And so um, there was room for this party to play, this small party, to play the large parties against each other. And um, in those days, in the heyday, the beginning of the party in its heyday, so these open primaries, although they were technically possible, were, were less common. And so a lot of it was bargaining, you know. And here, you know, you better nominate someone that we, that we like, or we might even endorse their opponent, or we might run our own candidate. And depending on the level, this could be deadly to one or the other of the parties. So in the early 60s, there was a, um, an anonymous member of the Liberal Party who was talking to a, uh, some you know, scholar then doing a, um, a study in political science. He said, look, he said, on a statewide level, New York State, we cannot guarantee a Democrat 
that he will win if we endorse him. But we can guarantee that he will lose if we don't endorse him. Right? So the Democrats have to listen to them. <laughs> uh, on, on the city level, I think it was the opposite. You know, uh, the Republicans, if they were going to win the mayoralty, for example, they had to outflank the Democrats from the left, and they had people who could do that. And the the mark, you know, the, the good keeping, good housekeeping seal of approval for that was the Liberal Party endorsement. Were there any successful politicians who ran strictly as liberals without the cross endorsement? Occasionally there were. You know, these were the high points of the Liberal Party. Um, well, there were, um, you know, uh, in two different eras, the City Council of New York had um, a system which encouraged um, small parties. Uh, or encouraged proportional representation. Well, in the 1940s, the liberal for a while there were, there was something called uh, which people call proportional representation, but it was really like preferential balloting, like what we have now in the primaries in in New York, uh, where you would vote for the your the candidates in order of preference, right? And it was borough wide, and it was a very complicated system. Even the number of members of the council depended on how many votes were cast. It was very complicated. But um, the liberals elected a couple people of their own to the city council in 1945 for a four-year term. And then that was abolished. And then in the, um, in the, in the 60s, there was another system which existed for a while, which was that although most of the council was elected by district, there were also two representatives per borough, and each ca- each party ran one candidate, but the top two candidates got seats, <laughs> right? So automatically, uh, a party other than the dominant party got a seat, and the Liberals did elect a couple people that way as, as well into the 80s until that was abolished. They also elected, actually in 69, um, at least one candidate um, by district. But um, the biggest, uh, they're also, by the way, elected some <laughs> every once in a while. I think only in New York, you know, places like that once in a while had, you know, Liberal Party council members or even a mayor at one, one point. But um, in New York City, in 1951, they elected the president of the city council in a special election, Rudolph Halley. And then in the big victory was 1969, when John Lindsay was running for re-election for mayor, and he lost the Republican primary, but he, he won re-election on the Liberal Party line. Uh, they also, they, they, you know, they also created another line for him, but really it was the Liberal, the Liberal Party line. So, so the Liberals elected the mayor of the, of the, of the country's largest city at that time. At the policy level, what did they stand for in these years, the 40s, 50s, into the 60s? 40s, 50s, into the 60s, they stood for what they would have called in their phrase in the, in the 40s was fighting liberalism. And that meant defending but also extending the New Deal. Right? So certainly 
um, you know, defending and improving and extending things like social security, unemployment benefits, uh, but also the, you know, the great unfinished business of the New Deal, which was health insurance, right? Um, also affordable housing, so public housing, uh, something which exists in New York City, but not that many other places, which is these kind of nonprofit cooperative housing and laws which made it possible to promote those kinds of developments. And uh, very, very much for um, rent, rent uh, regulation. So all kinds of measures to keep housing affordable, um, you know, defending low, low subsidized, low mass transit fares, um, uh, you know, uh, civil, civil rights laws. Uh, one of the first things they did was sent uh, delegations to Albany on behalf of the one of the first um, anti-employment discrimination laws in the country. Uh, I've, I've, I always forget whether it's Ives Quinn or Quinn Ives. <laughs> Ives Quinn, I believe. Law. Um, they helped to develop um, uh, another law which banned discrimination in housing. So, you know, I would say in a lot of ways the typical kind of social liberal uh, platform that would, as I said, defend and extend the New Deal and also guarantee um, kind of racial equality. Now, what about global politics in these same years? Because by the 1950s, the U.S. is into the Cold War. How did that shape the Liberal Party? Well, they were uh, they were very anti-communist. That was one of the reasons for their one of their reasons for their existence, you know. So they tried to, so first of all, in foreign policy, oh, they supported the Marshall Plan. They, um, you know, supported kind of uh, efforts to shore up the, the social democratic parties in Western Europe. Um, they, uh, were torn about some other things, you know, during the Greek Civil War, for example, you know, they didn't like either side, uh, and they were torn about the domestic implications. So they didn't like McCarthyism, they didn't like McCarthy, but they didn't like communists either, and they thought it was legitimate to exclude communists from certain kinds of positions, government, government positions and even some teaching positions. But they always felt like they could recognize who was a communist and these right-wing Republicans didn't know a communist from a socialist, from a Trotskyist, from anything. You know? It was all the same to them. And the liberals knew that there was a difference. And to them, it was really the communist party, the orthodox Stalinists. That was the problem, right? Because that was, that was really kind of, they were agents of a foreign power. But if you had like small key, small C communist ideas, or Trotskyist or something like that, or some other kind of, you know, dissident, communist or socialist, that was fine. You know, that was okay. And they did sometimes defend individuals who were, you know, attacked um, and accused of being communist. They said, no, they're not, they're not communists. They're, they're whatever they were in their own. What was the impact of the Vietnam War on this party then? So the, the impact of the Vietnam War was, um, 
it was really part of the beginning of the end, really, because I think it was true of liberalism as a whole in America, right? People, I think, tend to forget that who was waging this war, but it was a liberal democratic administration. <laughs> and so some people in the liberal party supported the war. And some people said, well, you know, we want to support the Johnson administration no matter what. Uh, but then others came to oppose it to varying degrees. And there were people in the party who sided with the kind of left wing of the Democratic Party and being just very much opposed to the war. Uh, and there were others who tried to stake out a kind of more moderate anti-war position. Uh, by 1968, that's what the party officially did. It took a an anti-war position. And this alienated um, some people in the party, including the leadership of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union that began to withdraw its support for the party. Um, not only for that reason, but partly that was part of the politics that was mixed up in it. And that was that, that union was like the mainstay, both in terms of money and in terms of actual people, <laughs> you know. Um, and so it was one of the factors that helped to kind of uh, tear apart the coherence of the party and let, help lead to its ultimate decline. You know, one of the things that's striking as you describe this is it's a party with a fair bit of internal dissension. It's a party committed to reform, but in its early decades, it's very much run by bosses. How do you explain that? Well, it was, it was like, you know, they were trade union bosses and they were, and they ran it like a trade union. They didn't want to lose control of it. And um, they also, you know, I think this is common in a lot of unions, but I think it was also part of their experience battling it out with the communists in their unions in the 1920s, going back to the 20s. And they said, "We're never. this is not going to happen again, you know. And so they kept very tight reins on what went on in the party. There was, um, so in the early years, I would say the inner circle were these small group of trade unionists, especially David Dubinsky from the Ladies' Garment Workers and Alex Rose from the Hatters. But they also had these intellectuals like um, Adolf A. Burley, who was a professor at Columbia, uh, Columbia Law, I believe, um, and a bunch of bunch of guys, George Counts and John Childs from the Teachers College. And they took these intellectuals very seriously. Also Reinhold Niebuhr, very important theologian, was active in the Liberal Party. Uh, Charles Abrams was an important like housing and racial equality intellectual and activist. And they took these people very seriously. And so they, they, they did take them into account. They took their opinions into account and so on. Uh, but they were very careful not to lose control of the party. Um, and you're right, there was dissension. There was always a lot of arguments. But in the end, um, partly because a lot of the activists in the party were also either office holders or staff members and so on, or members of the union, unions, right? And so um, they kind of followed the leadership of the union. I think that was part of it. 
did the party have strongholds outside New York City? It certainly had. Um, it certainly had an existence outside New York City, uh, in the other city, you know, big cities of of the state. So in Rochester, in Buffalo, uh, in Albany, uh, and in some of the small places like Olean, I mentioned, I believe they had a strong organization for a while. Uh, in Ithaca, they had a strong organization for a while, or, or at least a very active organization uh, that was made up mostly of people associated with you know, Cornell. Uh, but it, I don't think it ever really played quite the role it did it, as it did in New York City. There were some also kind of, you know, as, as time went on and some of the New York City people moved out <laughs> to the suburbs and exurbs in Rockland County and so on, they had, they had organizations there as well. Nassau County. Now, when did the party begin to decline and why? You talk about the Vietnam War and the splits wrought by that, but what other factors were in play and when did they come into have impact? So uh, I think the 60s were a real turning point, although the effects might have been, not have been noticed for a while, right? So there was the Vietnam War and there was also um, demographic change and racial tension and politics in New York City especially started to be organized uh, other people other historians have made this argument more around race than around class right? and so um, and, the, and the kind of old-fashioned civil rights politics and social democratic politics that the Liberal Party embodied started to seem a little bit uh, obsolete so, for example, like for a lot of groups in New York City, the teacher strike in 1968, the, the conflict over community control was, was damaging to the Liberal Party. Uh, Al Schenker, the head of the union, the teachers union, was on the policy committee, the highest body of the Liberal Party, although I don't think he was particularly active or influential there, but he was a member. Uh, and the teachers were kind of like, you know, the after the garment workers, like this, the next generation of kind of base of support for the Liberal Party. But a lot of people in the party, including the chair, who was then the Reverend Donald Harrington, a Unitarian minister, um, kind of were inclined the other way to support community control, or at least to try to find some sort of middle ground, which was, which was very hard, was getting very polarized. And probably more important than alienating Al Shanker, who, as I said, was not all that active, was alienating um, a lot of this kind of lower middle class uh, Jews in the outer boroughs who had been the party's mainstay base of support and who mostly sided with the teachers' union. Um, so there were issues like that. There were issues like, um, you know, uh, the public housing in Forest Hills in the early 70s, where the head of the housing authority was Simeon Golar, who was an African-American uh, leader of the, of the Liberal Party, um, but again, who faced off against a lot of people who in some ways had been the base of party of party support, so that was another uh, another uh, kind of uh, blow to the party, uh, and 
just general kind of demographic change, they 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 made some efforts. You know, they tried to reach out to the to the to the ethnic groups that were growing in the city, which were blacks and um, Hispanics, then mostly Puerto Ricans. But they didn't do a very good job of it, and they're very inconsistent about it. And they came so much out of this older kind of culture, you know, that they never really struck roots in these new communities. And so the party is shrinking. The base of the party is definitely shrinking for all, you know, for political reasons, for just demographic reasons, for cultural reasons, all kinds of things. Um, and uh, that, you know, but I don't know if anyone really noticed it exactly. Uh, into the 70s. Um, one irony is that the party was shrinking at the moment it had the most patronage because of the Lindsay administration. Uh, so also, they, also they, they needed money, right, because the unions were providing less money. So, um, you know, they, the patronage started to seem more important to them. And I talked to Ed Morrison, who was deputy mayor for Lindsay, and, 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 a vice, and well, he was, uh, before he became deputy mayor, he was chair of the Manhattan liberal organization. And he was kind of in charge of doling out the, even before he was deputy mayor, doling out the patronage jobs, you know. But he, he, he told me, they said, you start to see people would come, come to him and say, look, Alex, send me Alex Rose. The vice chair, but if really the, the boss of the party, Alex sent me about a job, and he would say, "Like, who the heck are you? I never saw you before in the Liberal Party." So, well, you know, someone knew someone, or someone needed a favor, or someone, you know, whatever. It started to be kind of more a center of attention. Um, it was just kind of getting and doling out the jobs. Do you agree with the critics who say that it degenerated into a patronage mill? Oh, yeah. I mean, if not by the 1960s, certainly by the 80s. Uh, Alex Rose, another blow is that in the 70s, there was a real generational turnover. So Alex Rose died at the end of 1976. And, um, you know, he was all trade unionist. Um, ideologically, If you know, he was mostly kind of a labor Zionist, who's kind of social Zionist. Um, also, the executive director from the very beginning of the party, Ben Davidson, he retired um, right at the same time. He actually stayed on a little longer after Rose died, but he retired, you know, shortly after. Um, and there was a power struggle for the party. Um, ben Davidson, too, had taken the program very seriously. He wrote you know, these long, long programs with all the positions on the issues. Um, so he retired, and there was a power struggle in the party, and the ultimate winner was a guy named Ray Harding, who had been active in the party. Uh, but Ray Harding was not that interested in ideology. He wasn't even interested in program or, you know, policy. He was interested in in the wheeling and the dealing. That's what he was interested in. He could talk a good line. You know, you make a speech at the annual dinner about, you know, fighting reaction or whatever. But really, he was about the jobs. And that becomes much clearer 
you know, the further you, further on you go. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, stepping back to, to think about the long history of the Liberal Party, it was born in one kind of New York City and expired in another kind of New York City. What do you think were the party's greatest achievements in its active years? Well, you know, it's very hard to, to say what would have happened without the party, right? Where would the, these people have been? Maybe they would have been in the Democratic Party. I don't know. But certainly the Liberal Party and the forces it represented were very important parts of what historian Josh Friedman, Freeman and others have called social democratic New York, right? That New York had, um, you know, really the most extensive social democracy, I mean, welfare state of any part of the country. They had 5% of the population lived in public housing. Uh, another, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people lived in nonprofit middle-class cooperative housing. Um, there was free education, you know, through college. Uh, there were, um, there were, there were more public hospitals, all of this kinds of stuff. You, the labor movement was very strong. You know, so there were things like health plans, which weren't government, were not government programs, but which government had helped the unions and other nonprofits to set up, you know. And all of this was maintained by certainly a coalition, right, that included a lot of different forces, but the Liberal Party was in the center of that. And that was another blow, by the way, by the mid-'70s, when um, this thing, this kind of thing, lost the support of the federal government and began to seem unsustainable. And then you had the great fiscal crisis of 1975. So, you know, this kind of politics was very much on the defensive and, you know, a lot of small L liberals were also kind of questioning it as well. It just started to seem untenable. You know, the communist movement nationally and in New York City has in recent decades received fairly favorable treatment from historians. How would you weigh the achievements of communists in New York City and the kind of anti-communist leftists in the liberal party in the post-war decades? So I think like the critical thing, like you said, is post-war, right, decades, right? So I'm about the 30s during the war. I don't know. But the communists by, you know, after World War II, communists become more and more isolated, right? And so they can take whatever positions they want. No one's listening to them. I mean, people, not only they're not listening to them, they're afraid to go near them, <laughs> right? So they had this kind of very romantic, they, you know, honestly, they had a more romantic activist culture, right? And maybe they were more consistent in some ways, I say consistent in some ways, because like if they got an order from Moscow to change their position, that was, but that's a whole other story, right? Um, but in terms of actual influence, I think the Liberal Party had more interest, influence. They could go to Albany and they could lobby for a law and people might listen to them, right? And by the way, they, you know, um, so Stuyvesant Town, People might know when it was first built was racially segregated, um, and there were some residents 
of this new development in the 40s that didn't like that, and they fought against it. And you know, the, and again, the communists get the press, but the liberal, the, the local liberal club, liberal club was active in that fight too. You know, um, when uh, Ben Davis, the communist city councilman, gets up and criticizes. Uh, you know, Madison Square Garden for holding segregated meetings, he feels the necessity to also say, but they all, and they also won't let in the Lenin birthday celebration. <laughs> you know? And so, and everyone, like, stops listening to him, right? But the Liberal Party also criticized, um, you know, Madison Square Garden and people like Robert Moses and things like this. And I, so in some ways, I think they had more influence uh, more real influence, uh, certainly in the 40s and 50s, uh, on all kinds of issues than the pro-communist left had. By pro-communist, I mean the communists, but also uh, what you could call the popular front progressives who kind of were in the orbit of the communist party. You know, in its heyday, you, you talk about how the Liberal Party had a strong Jewish membership. How is the social profile and the place of politically engaged in New York's politically engaged Jews in New York City changed since the death of the Liberal Party? Well, um, the Liberal Party died a slow death. Um, you mentioned it said it disbanded in two thousand two. It's not. I mean, yeah, some people would say that's not com- completely accurate. It lost its ballot line. Mm-hmm. Closed its office, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it remains you know, to be revived. But uh, there were some people who tried to keep it alive, and there's still a website, and there's still some people who would like to, you know, keep it alive. But it, you know, certainly lost its its influence and you know, and much of its organization. Um, this the social profile of New York Jews has changed. I mean, the Jewish population declined second half of the 20th century from you know over 2 million to under a million it started to grow again in the 21st century um, but there's there's a much more complicated I think political profile now um, there's you know the, the, the old kind of stereotype but also kind of you know, stereotype with the basis in some reality, at least, of the liberal New York Jew still exists. And Jews are certainly very active in all kinds of progressive causes uh, of all sorts. Uh, And they vote Democratic, you know, and they vote um, Working Families Party in some cases, uh, and so on. But um, a growing percentage, a growing proportion of the Jewish population in New York City consists of the Orthodox Jewish community, especially the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, so-called, both Hasidic and non-Hasidic, mostly in Brooklyn, although not exclusively, and also of more recent Russian immigrants, again, mostly in Brooklyn, but not exclusively. And they have a much more conservative um, voting pattern some extent, it's you know, some extent, a pragmatic voting pattern, and the Democratic Party is still the dominant party. So they will, um, 
you know, deal with that. Uh, but they tend to be very conservative, right? And they and they vote um, presidential elections. They voted uh, Republican in the last couple presidential uh, elections. If you look at a uh, a electoral map, I know of 2016. I haven't seen one from 2020, but online you can you can look it up for kind of a map of EDs of election districts in Brooklyn. Oh, Hillary Clinton took Brooklyn, you know, by 80% or something like this. But um, there's a Trump belt, <laughs> a very clear Trump belt, which is basically Orthodox and Russian immigrant Jewish Brooklyn. Plus a little pockets here and there of white Italians and so on. Right, right. You know, in New York State, both conservatives on the right and the Working Families Party on the left follow a third-party path that was blazed by the Liberal Party. What can these two different parties learn from the history of the liberals? Well, the first thing they learned was the success of the liberals. Both of these parties looked at the liberals and said, you know, we could do that, right? (laughs) The conservative party... um, was a, the dynamic was a little different in the sense that the liberals, as we said earlier, they wanted to play the Democrats and the Republicans off each other to pull them a little bit to the left. Uh, the conservative party was about pulling the Republican party to the right. The Republican party was too liberal for them in New York. And I said, well, you know, we, we could pull them to the right if we make ourselves necessary you know, for their victory, and they succeeded uh, over the course of several decades. Um, the Working Families Party, I think, was a little different. And I think they looked and they said the Liberal Party by the 1990s was kind of nothing, right? It, did, it barely existed as an organization. It was a ballot line, um, you know, and it wasn't progressive. It was detached from the labor movement, and they said we could occupy that space, you know. And um, so they formed this new party. I think the the object lesson for them both is always to the difficulty of this maintaining the pragmatism with the fealty to their ideological and programmatic kind of reason for existing, right? Um, And someone did tell me from the Working Families Party once that he stayed up nights worrying that they would end up like the Liberal Party. (laughs) And I think that one thing they did was that they decided they're not going to take patronage jobs. They're not going to take appointed jobs. I don't know if that's still true, but I think that was certainly one thing that they decided to do, and it was looking at the Liberal Party and what had become of it. Last question. Looking at the Liberal Party's history, would you recommend third parties and cross-endorsements to other states? Well, interestingly enough, you know, it was a couple of weeks ago, there was an article in the Times where some centrists in New Jersey are considering such a thing. Um, They want to get cross-endorsement passed in New Jersey, so they could form a moderate party. <laughs> um, well, uh, 
I think it's inter- I think it makes the politics more interesting. What can I say? Does it make it more functional? I'm not sure. Makes it more interesting in what way? Uh, well, it makes it a little more complex. It also makes it a little bit more. Um, people, I think, maybe do have to talk a little bit more about ideas. The candidates, you know, they have to talk about what they're for, um, what policies they want to put into effect. Uh, it provides more options for voters. Right. By the way, New York uh, Governor Cuomo just a couple of years ago, managed to um, make it much more difficult for such parties to get on the ballot, stay on the ballot. So now it's much harder than it used to be. Um, but the Working Families Party and the Conservative Party survived the last cut. You know, um, For a while, the Greens had a ballot line. The Independence Party had a ballot line. The right to Life Party had a ballot line for a while. So it makes, you know, it gives more options to voters, I think. It makes the candidates have to be clearer about what they're for. And it kind of makes things a little bit more complicated, which makes them a little more interesting. Although it may also muddy things up a little bit at the same time. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been Rob Snyder talking with Dan Sawyer, professor of history at Fordham University, on his book, Left in the Center, The Liberal Party of New York and the Rise and Fall of American Social Democracy, published by Cornell University Press. Dan, thanks for being with us today for the New Books Network. Uh, Thank you.